You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we have looked at the doctrinal part of the Shorter Catechism. Questions 1 through 38 deals primarily with the doctrines, and now we begin looking specifically at the duty which God requires of man, or what we call biblical ethics. And the catechism is divided up into three parts, generally. You have the doctrine, you have the ethics, and then you have the means of grace. Um, It goes into the prayer, the Lord's Prayer at the very end in detail. But we look at the moral law now, And it is talking about the duty required. The the Bible teaches what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So we start out with first question 39. What is the duty which God requires of man? And the answer is the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Why do we owe duty to God? Well, because he is our creator and he is our judge, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. So we are, as moral creatures, morally obligated to love God sincerely and to serve him faithfully. That's our duty. Regardless if we're righteous or sinful, our duty remains the same. And as Christians, we are under the added obligation because he has redeemed us from sin and its penalty. So out of gratitude, we obey our creator and our redeemer for all that he's done for us. Now, there are certain groups who deny that human beings owe any duty to the true and living God. This is probably nothing new to you, but... Atheists deny such an obligation because they deny the existence of God. There is no God. It's just chance, and therefore we owe no duty except to ourselves. Pantheists, who believe that everything is God, deny that God is a person, that he's found in everything, and therefore there are no obligations, at least morally. Humanists deny this duty because they claim that our highest obligation is toward our fellow man. And we can appreciate that desire that they want to do good to others. However, the ultimate goal is misguided. And of these three, of course, humanism is the most prevalent. I think it does idolize the creature instead of the creator. That is its root sin, its idolatry. And by serving our neighbor, we can fulfill our duty to God. In fact, matter of fact, that's the second table of the law, as we'll see. But our motivation has to be for his glory, which is the first table of the law. So if we love each other simply because we want to appear nice, be polite, if it's not for God's glory, then it's sin. Anything done outside of faith is sin. If you help an elderly woman across the street, if you're not a believer, it's sin. If we love others for God's sake, according to his revealed will, then it's a partial fulfillment of our duty. We are trying to fulfill the second table of the law, or those commandments which have to do with our duty toward man. 
Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So there you have what's called the golden rule. And if we do this for God's sake and his glory, then we are, revealing, we are fulfilling his revealed will for our lives in terms of our neighbor. Any question on this part? Don? Yep. <laughs> Sounds kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? It's a good work for the, for the substance of it. If he didn't walk her across the street, he would be even more guilty. But the problem is, as Paul says, whatever is done apart from faith, trusting in Christ for the glory of God, whatever is done is sin. So even the plowman cannot plow his field without sinning. It has to be done for the glory of God or it's sinful. So you're beginning to see, oh my word, who can stand in the presence of God? Nobody. Our best works as Christians are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. The only reason anything we do is accepted in God's sight is because Jesus intercedes. There was a, an analogy that someone said, um, little boy comes uh, on Mother's Day, comes in from the field, and he has this little bouquet <clears throat> filled with two or three flowers and all these weeds. And he says to his dad, Dad, I want to give this to Mom. It's Mother's Day. And the dad says, oh, son, that's fantastic. Let me see your bouquet. Takes the bouquet, takes out all these weeds, sticks in a couple more flowers, gives it to him, and he gives it to his mom. Beautiful bouquet. Well, it's an analogy of what Jesus does. Our best works are like a bouquet of weeds. And Jesus takes out the weeds, puts in the flowers, offers it to his father, and that makes it acceptable. The unbeliever has no mediator. There is nobody taking out the weeds. <clears throat> and therefore, even walking in the elderly woman across the street is sin. Mark? Well, it sounds like you're trying to distinguish between God's decretive will and God's prescriptive will. His decretive will are, is hidden. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. It's all his will, right? Everything is done according to his sovereign good pleasure. It's his decretive will. He decrees it. But his prescriptive will, what he's prescribed for us in his revealed will, that's our duty. So... We have no, uh, no indication as to God's decretive will, which is hidden. It's secret. He ordains it all. He ordains that the unbeliever takes the elderly woman across the street. Yes, that's true. But the unbeliever taking the elderly woman across the street doesn't do it because of the prescriptive will. He does it because he wants to look nice. Uh, perhaps he's hoping for a tip. 
Who, who knows what the reason is, you know? But he doesn't do it for the glory of God. And our duty, remember, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John? Right, and he's deceiving himself because ultimately it's his own glory that he's seeking. Nobody does it altruistically. No sinner does it altruistically. You might think you're doing it for mankind in general, but it is humanism, and humanism at its root is idolatry, and it's self-focused. Whether it's pride and you being part of the human race, whatever the case may be, if we get down psychologically and try to figure it out, it's tough. There's no good explanation for sin, Ultimately, you cannot justify it or explain it, but it's not for the glory of God, and therefore, it is sin. Sue? Exactly. We cannot fulfill the law. We can't do it. Which is why, and we'll see one of the uses of the law, is to drive us to Christ and to trust in his obedience. There is no hope without the obedience of Christ. But if we do something out of obedience, maybe, you know, it's not the purest motive, but we go, you know, I'm not really wrong with him, whatever, but I know it's something I shouldn't do. To me, if you're doing it out of obedience, in the way you're honoring God, even though you don't feel like doing it, you know it's the right thing to do, and you should do it. Well, Let's take probably one of the most, the loftiest unbeliever's motive is caring for her children, right? A parent caring for his or her child. Well, he's doing it because there is this innate God-given love for the child that he would feel guilty, and the consequence would be uh, shame, uh, perhaps going to jail. So ultimately, again, if we tease it out all the way, the sinner is ultimately selfish. Everything he or she does is self-focused. Fear of punishment, right? The consequences of sin. If, if I don't do this, this will be the consequence. If I do do that, that'll be the consequence. We're always thinking about consequences as sinners. There is never a sinner ever who does something for the glory of God. And whatever's not done for the glory of God is sin. And again, this shows us the need for Christ. Carolyn? Scott, what does the, you know, the, the term common grace, does that kind of um, you know, address this whole issue of the non-believer in doing these uh, things that look righteous mm -hmm. and good? Exactly. Right. And common grace normally restrains evil. We don't live in hell. I mean, if God didn't give us his common grace to restrain our evil, this would be hell on earth. But it's not. So there are some common virtues, courage, decency, citizenship, you know, these kinds of things that he allows to take place and he'll sustain them in restraining evil. But common grace is not redemptive. There's no change for the sinner. And so his motivation remains selfish. 
Yeah. Greg? And on the back end of that, they say that the person walking, the other person across the street, you also see like God could bless the old person who needs to walk across the street. God could be providing a blessing, right? Through this unbelieving, sinful action. Absolutely. He still could be bringing a blessing to the person. Because in some sense, again, it's a relatively good thing where it's a blessing to that person. Oh, sir, certainly. It's just that the person who's doing it still is not right. receiving the blessing of a good word because they're not doing it again for the glory of God. Cyrus, King Cyrus, is called Messiah because he allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple, and he was a, a patron of Israel, as it were. He wasn't a believer, but God used that to bless his people. So you're exactly right. The blessing can be through an unbeliever to the elderly woman or the believer or whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. Faith is a mustard seed. If there is a spark, even a spark, that Jesus is in control and Jesus has put this woman in my life, then he accepts it through Jesus Christ, right? If you give a cup of cold water with even a spark of faith, then he accepts it because of Christ, for the honor of Jesus, not for you, but for the honor of Jesus, right? But see, that shows us the need for the perfection of his obedience. The best thing you can do, let's say it's worship or whatever, it's tainted. You and I both know how much our thoughts wander. You know, it's so difficult to stay focused. Um, but he accepts it because of his son, Christ. It's all through Christ. He gets the glory, not us. Okay? Well, let's continue. God is the creator, benefactor, and supreme lawgiver and king. He alone is Lord of the conscience, which is the lamp of the Lord. I think maybe Mark had said this or something. The conscience is God-given. It searches the inmost parts of a man or a woman. It exposes. It excuses or accuses, as the case may be. And obedience has to be governed by an informed conscience in his revealed will, the special revelation. So you can't say, well, we will say that the will of God, the work of the law, is written on the heart. We're made in the image of God. And so the work of the law is there. But sin distorts it, it blinds us, it dulls our conscience, and so we need the revealed will of God, the Scriptures, which is why we need to be people of the book. Let's never get away from the Holy Scriptures. His decretive will, here we go, Mark, his decretive will is distinguished from his prescriptive will. <clears throat> His decree of will has to do with his sovereign decree according to which everything comes to pass. We believe that God is sovereign. And that word, if we truly believe it, means there is nothing that happens outside of his control. His prescriptive will has to do with his revealed will and those things that he requires or has revealed. <clears throat> the secret things belong to the Lord our God, decree of will. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So he's revealed this to us, and this is where we come with biblical ethics. It's a matter of belief and life. 
doctrine and practice, or as Elder Gillen will say, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What I believe, what I do. His revealed will is to be found in the scriptures. It's publicly made known. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Well, what's justice? Well, his revealed will teaches us what justice is. To love kindness. How am I to treat my neighbor? And to walk humbly with your God. How do I do that? Well, I trust in Christ first and foremost. I worship him. I serve him. I offer to him my obedience, imperfect as it may be. And obedience is not only our duty as creatures, but it's also our highest wisdom as intelligent beings. If you want to live a wise life, then you try to live in obedience to God's will. This is the beauty of the Ten Commandments. We often think of it as, oh, this burdensome thing. No, the Ten Commandments are for freed people. God wants us to live freely. And the only way that God, people made in his image can live freely is to live according to his will. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. It is through obedience to God's revealed will that we fulfill the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and to enjoy him. He is our Lord, our sovereign, whose will is the standard for glorifying and enjoying him. So, any questions on the duty that he requires? Any further comments or questions on what we've discussed? We all on board? Okay. So then 40. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Well, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. He created man in his image with the work of the law written on his heart. Uh, This is one of the things, the creation of man was a covenantal act. In other words, how do you know that? Well, he created man in covenant with him. And when you're in covenant with God, there are blessings offered, there are duties required. So, how do I know that? Well, for example, when he said, let there be light, and he called it day, That was a divine fiat. You ever heard the word fiat? It's a great term. It's where a king just makes a pronouncement. And that divine fiat, let there be light, and he called the day light day. Jeremiah refers to that as God's covenant with the day. So are we tracking? He says, let there be light. That's a covenantal fiat. Jeremiah calls it his covenant with the day. So... Let us make man in our image. Divine fiat, it's a covenantal fiat. He makes man in his image in covenant with him. So he's obligated as a covenantal being to obey God. Well, this was before God gave him the special command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what was man to obey? The moral law. This law was written on his heart. He knew God's moral requirements. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, helping the elderly woman across the street, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show 
that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's the lamp of the Lord inside the conscience, searching, excusing, or accusing the person. The conscience God gave, and the work of the law, there is this this sense of morality that we find in every culture. Where does that come from? It's the work of the law written on the heart of man. So by nature, we have a sense of right and wrong. Why does a three-year-old feel shame when he or she does something wrong? Maybe I should say two-year-old. I I can't remember. It's been a long time. (laughs) Because the work of the law is written there, and they have a sense. Now, it's not informed by any means. They don't know all the details. We get that in the revealed will. But there is a sense of morality. And the child feels shame when he or she has done something wrong when she's disobeyed. So we find this idea that the work of the law is written there. And even the Gentiles, the unbelievers, have a sense of morality. Do they do it for the glory of God? No. Do they do it because their conscience is tender? Maybe. Common grace. A tender conscience is common grace. Restraining evil through conscience, through consequences, through magistrates, but we do see that this idea of morality is prevalent. The moral law is the declaration of God's holy nature and his righteous will, which binds everybody to obedience. By the light of nature, this is an old-fashioned way of talking about reason and conscience. It's the light that we have by nature. You're not redeemed, but by nature, you have light, conscience, reason, And man knew all things contained in the moral law. We are bound to personal, perfect obedience in soul and body to both God and man. This is the error that the Pharisees made. Well, I haven't committed murder because I've never taken somebody's life. Well, Jesus says, if you've been angry, you're guilty of murder already. It's in your heart. And if God took away all of the consequences and there was no way for you to be discovered and you could never be caught, you'd kill him. That's the human heart, right? Uh, I was just talking to uh, Mark and Heather this morning, and they were saying, yeah, one of the children has, uh, they're working on the children's disobedience and so forth. And I said, well, yeah, because uh, you're bigger, stronger, wealthier, wiser than this child. So that child can't do what the child wants to do. But if that child could, that child would slit your throat. I'm not kidding, because of the anger, right? So in God's wisdom, they can't do it. Okay. And over time, and by God's common grace, restraining that evil, you know. Obedience must be personal. Nobody else can do it. No ordinary man can do it for you. A representative of the covenant can do it for you, which did happen in the first Adam, and it happens in the second Adam. It has to be perfect, which was the obligation at the beginning. It has not been abrogated. Obedience must be with the whole man's soul and body, which includes thoughts, words, and actions. Your errant thoughts, every careless word, will be judged. Man's fall into sin did not cancel or disannul or alleviate his obligation to fulfill the moral law. It's sort of like the person who's driving drunk 
and he gets into an accident. And he says to the officer, well, I'm sorry, officer, I was drunk. I couldn't help myself. I, I hit the tree. Yes, but you hit the tree. That was not your obligation. You committed a crime. You shouldn't have been drinking. You took away your ability to drive. Adam took away our ability to live righteously. It doesn't alleviate our obligation to the law, right? <clears throat> Any questions on, on this part? Okay? Yeah, Chris? Um, Chris? Both, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to, and if I did, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to demean the physical aspect because certainly he exercises dominion, and we still do that, right? He, we still are God's vicegerent, though we're distorted and defaced. But the point, in t the point being that the law is not just perfect, but it's spiritual, right? And when we talk about biblical ethics, the tendency for human beings is to live self-righteously. Oh, I'm righteous because I've never taken somebody's life. And this, again, was the error of the Pharisees. So we have to get down to the root and say, look, it's not just the physical act, although that's important and included. It is in terms of your heart and your motivation. <clears throat> and this gets back to our discussion of helping the elderly woman. It's not just the physical act. Why did you do it? For what purpose? And that's where the rubber hits the road, you know? So I don't know if I've answered your question, but okay. There's no indication that in, in Scripture that our obligation has ceased. Paul says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's applying that to a new covenant situation. And he's saying that the commandments are relevant. So it's not as if somehow the Ten Commandments were Old Testament and us New Testament believers don't have to worry about it. Neither circumcision counts for anything, <clears throat> nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's the evidence that you're a true believer, that you can gain assurance. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They are very burdensome to the unbeliever. We don't want to keep those commandments. The only reason we keep those commandments is common grace and the fear of consequence. But the believer has a different motivation. <clears throat> the seed of God has been implanted. He loves the Lord imperfectly, but he loves the Lord, and he keeps the commandments out of love for Christ. The first four have our duty to God, and the other six our duty to man. In other words, it demands obedience in both holiness and righteousness. Now, these two words have been used historically in a technical sense. Holiness has to do specifically with our duty to God, the branch of religious worship. Righteousness 
historically has had to do primarily with our duties to other people and our various relationships. So you have holiness, the first four commandments, righteousness, the last six commandments, and both of these comprise our duty morally. It's a perfect standard for both belief and practice. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Any questions on this slide? Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. I'm reminded of this when you talked about helping the elderly woman across the street. He's <laughs> getting a lot of work out. When I do that, I always, and I can't refrain from this, I always pat myself on the back and say, what a good boy. It reminds me that we can't do that. No matter how hard we try, we, we can try to do things to the glory of God, but we fall short of right. We always want to take credit for our good deeds. That's right. And when we take credit for our good deeds, it just destroys what we just did. Right. Because the motivation is wrong. It's like when I'm so proud of my humility. You know, it's just wonderful. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah, well said. Okay, the Ten Commandments, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? So where is this moral law summarized? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. He declared to you this covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Moses is reflecting upon this covenant made with Israel on Sinai, and he's talking about the charter which defines our duties and privileges in a given covenant. And it was the Ten Commandments. That's the root. That's the, that's the core of the Old Covenant. Now, there's all kinds of things that you, you know that came out from that. But every single law or requirement in Exodus, Genesis, whatever, derives from the Ten Commandments. That's the basis, the foundation of the Old Covenant. So, as we'll find going through the exposition of the Ten Commandments, I mean, they are extensive. The Ten Commandments cover every aspect of human life and belief. Those people were to honor their God in the same way that we are to honor the same God. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Doesn't change. He is the great deliverer who liberated Israel from their bondage in Egypt as he delivers us from our slavery to sin. So I think, um, I think Elder or Pastor Pilon will have the preface, or maybe I will, I can't remember, but the preface will show us that this is a gracious thing. He begins the Ten Commandments, which are largely prohibitive with, look, I've redeemed you from Egyptian slavery. Therefore, honor your God. And this is how we'll do that. The deliverance was undeserved. It was freely given. And it shows that it's a gracious covenant. Because of God's goodness and mercy in delivering them, they must keep all of his commandments. This is for his glory and their good. He wants his people to live in freedom from the bondage of sin. To disobey the Ten Commandments is to live in bondage to sin. Again, the world turns it upside down and calls evil good and good evil. If you obey the Ten Commandments, you're in bondage. That's what they'll tell us. You need to be free to express yourself and to fulfill every single sinful desire. 
The Bible says if you're able to obey the Ten Commandments, you're truly free. You're doing what God made you to do. And that's the only way that we can be free because what does the Bible say? Everybody serves a master. You cannot be autonomous. That's not how we're made. We serve God or we serve evil. We're truly free and fulfill our purpose only when we're able and willing to keep his righteous law. So life lived according to the commandments of God is a holy life, separated from the world. And under the new covenant for the individual believer, the law serves as a necessary guide to godly living. You're not condemned. You're freed in Christ. You're delivered. You're justified, adopted, sanctified. You will be glorified. So how are we going to live this life in this world? Well, here's the guide. God gives us the ten words. They're rules for worship, service, obedience among a liberated people. He sets you free. Now, this is how free people live. Any questions on that? Okay. Now, this is interesting. There are similarities between the Ten Commandments and what we call ancient treaty documents or suzerain vassal treaties. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. In the ancient world, when a, when a great king, a suzerain, would make a treaty with a lesser king, it would be a suzerain vassal treaty. And the great king, the suzerain, would offer benefits for the vassal's subjugation, loyalty, deference, tribute. And so God, what he does is he takes something that in his providence is prevalent in the world around him, and he frames his own covenant with his people in a similar way so that his people can understand God is the suzerain and we are the vassals. A king introduces himself and tells of his favors bestowed. Well, we have the preamble. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There you have the preamble. The king prescribes duties, explains the benefits, and details the sanctions if broken. And so we have the Ten Commandments. There are many the substance of the commandments themselves, the duties. There are some benefits explained. Uh, you'll live a long life in the land if you obey your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise, according to Paul. And there are sanctions. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So if we don't worship him according to his will, he counts that as breaking the covenant and we hate him. It's severe. We find all these elements contained in the Decalogue of Exodus 20. And the practice of recording a covenant on tablets was also common in the ancient world. In the suzerain vassal treaty, each party, the suzerain and the vassal, would have a copy of the covenant. Just like today, if you have a contract, right? The bank has one copy, you have the other copy for your house, your mortgage. You each have one. They're identical copies as today, so then. And so it's most likely that the two tables from Sinai were identical copies. Some people get it in their minds that, okay, the first, like, have you seen the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille? I think the first table had the Four Commandments, and the second table, tablet had the Six Commandments. No, 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 no. They're identical copies, one for the suzerain, one for the vassal. Yahweh wrote one tablet for himself, 
the other copy for Israel, both deposited in the ark, as you can see. And both of these texts, all three of these texts, talk about the tablets being deposited in the ark. Any questions on that? Rob? So the, uh, this reference to these ancient Jewish documents, they're just saying that the format is similar. I mean, I imagine yeah. the content of these ancient documents is not oral. <clears throat> You're exactly right. It's, it's mainly the, the, the frame, the pattern, the format. Although it's interesting, we talked about the work of the law written on the heart. The King Hammurabi, do I have that right? For those of you, yeah. Very moral, righteous. Not holy, but righteous. Remember we talked about the second table of the law. Um, you can see the work of the law written on their hearts because he has this incredible list of commandments. But yeah, it's really the format. So God was taking a format with which they're familiar to show that he is the suzerain to the vassal. You are my vassals. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bestow these benefits on you if you obey my commandments. Okay? The sum, <clears throat> what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And of course, this was the Lord Jesus in summation of the commandments when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is the sum of the sum right there. The great and first commandment covers the first four associated with our relationship to God. He is the object of our worship and our obedience the other six contain our love to neighbor, which flows from our love to God. Isn't it interesting that you have first four first? If you don't love God, you can't truly love your neighbor. As Jim said, you're always going to be justifying yourself. Well, look, look how good I am. That's the reason we do it, if we do it at all. The commandments originate from and carry with them the same authority, whether it's love God or love neighbor, same authority, God commands it. Whatever he commands is our duty. I know this is probably TMI, but as John Gerstner used to say, if God commands it, I would eat dung. It's his authority. That's all there is to it. We learn from this sum of the commandments that love is other-oriented. It's not about me. It's about God and neighbor. And the whole of the Christian life in growing in maturity is learning how to be other-focused, right? It's so hard. I am so selfish by nature. Marriage has taught me that. Parenting has taught me that. Pastoring has taught me that. I am a very selfish human being. Now, hopefully, over 40 years, I'm not quite as selfish as I was in 1983, you know. But that's the case. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience means an informed conscience, a renewed conscience, one that is not seared, one that has not been subdued by the lusts of the flesh. Any questions on the sum? Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I know we got a couple minutes here. Let me... Let me try to go through this quickly because this is not part of the questions, but we talk about the three uses of the law. I think it's important 
<clears throat> First of all, the moral laws are useful to mankind as a whole. It informs us of God's holy nature and will. This is who he is. He's holy. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's who God is, holy, righteous, and good. It's not a principle or a force existing in and of itself, but it's what God's nature and will demands. It convinces mankind of their disability to keep the law. Our discussion today has shown we cannot do this. The sinfulness of our nature, hearts, and lives. And the harder a person tries to obey this standard, the more he becomes convinced of his disability to do it. Now, that doesn't mean we stop striving, but we acknowledge we can't do it. And it humbles us for our sin and misery, makes, us, makes it more clear that we need Christ. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Um, we're humbled. Jesus perfectly fulfilled it as we can see. That's the first use to mankind in general. The second use is to unregenerate people, unbelievers, sinners. It awakens their conscience to flee from the wrath to come, and it drives them to Christ. What a wonderful thing that is. It's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners. An unregenerate person, of course, is not born from above. He's in a fog. His conscience is in a fog. He's drifting near sleep. He has to be awakened. That's a merciful thing. And so the moral law declares God's holy will. It implies the wrath that is revealed against unrighteousness. And when his conscience is awakened, he flees. It brings judgment, provides no way of escape, but it is used as a prod to drive him to Christ. All sinners have a dim understanding of morality, which we saw in Romans 2. If the sinner, knowing the moral law, Hearing the pangs of conscience refuses to comply. It leaves him inexcusable and under a curse. There's no excuse. On that day of judgment, you're going to stand before that white throne judgment, and God's going to say, why didn't you obey the moral law? You cannot say out of ignorance because you know, and I know. That is a good question. But I will say this, that mental illness is an effect of the fall. Every ill that we have is the result of ultimately from sin, and it's a distortion. And God can redeem it, but if an unbeliever suffers from mental illness, it's no excuse. I know it's harsh. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to be harsh unnecessarily. But there is no excuse. Mental illness, dementia, Alzheimer's, that's not an excuse because there was a time, or at least there was a a crack of light that the person understands the moral obligation. There's no excuse. Now, you're going to say to me, how about a person who from the beginning is mentally challenged or incapable an IQ of 30 or something like that. I, I don't know. All I do know is that a person is saved through Christ. And our confession says that elect infants and people who are incapable 
of rationality and understanding. Elect people are saved by Christ. Outside of that, I, I don't have an answer. But I do know this, if you're a believer and you go into dementia or Alzheimer's, he has you in his grip. He'll never let you go. So if you're beginning to feel that, don't worry. <laughs> Third use of the law for the believer. <laughs> I'm forgetting things all the time, so don't. It's, it's a guide for, for obedience. I have to stop. I can't go any farther. But any final comments or questions? Yeah, Kes? Yeah. Just how much that breaks God's heart to send them to hell. Yeah. You know, there's a little DNA in everybody. Right. It's a mystery. It is a mystery. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, whether it's physical, spiritual, or eternal. No pleasure. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you've revealed yourself, not only in creation and other places, but especially in your moral law. We cannot keep it. We've tried, but we're so thankful that the Lord Jesus has done it perfectly and that you are willing out of grace to impute his righteousness to us. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.